Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. You know what I want. <laughs> I want to talk Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Pull-Up Trey podcast, wherein myself, Samson Folk, I pull up with my good pal Trey. We talk about basketball, the NBA at large. We're both sporting Blue Jays caps and, you know, Trey in a Blue Jays jersey as well. We just watched the Jays 1-0. We talk a little bit of baseball at the end of these things. And uh, we're here with a mailbag episode, by the way. So, uh, one of the cool things about, you know, if you have a podcast that has any type of meaningful listenership, um, which luckily we do. Um, people care about what you think about certain things. People care what we think about basketball. We asked, what do you want to hear from us? And questions were asked of us. We're here to answer them. Trey, how the hell are you doing, man? Good, good. Uh, that Jays game, insane. Can't believe they came back and won. So that was good. And um, I've for the last like couple of days or so, I've been seeing like the mass amount of messages we've got for the mailbag stuff. So there's a lot of interesting stuff I'm ready to dig into. This that's another good thing is I'm I'm not pumping tires or anything, but as somebody who focuses more on like the analysis of basketball, people when they ask mailbag questions, typically like they they ask the things they've been stewing on for quite a while. Like there's yeah. there's some really in depth stuff here. The first of which, of course, we were asked two questions about Nick Nurse in Toronto, Ime Udoka in Toronto, and since Doug Smith had the report today in his piece talking about nurse and the raptors perhaps you know at some point reaching the end of their agreement on him coaching there the whispers that imeo doka is somebody who would who the raptors would be interested in if they don't hire within the organization that just came out from the toronto star that's what we're going to talk about first so from nd talks ball quote what's your stance on the coaching staff do you think we need an upgrade doesn't have to be Nick himself, but maybe the assistants as well. It's a really hard convo because it's hard for the average average fan to know what the staff really does, but maybe you have some insight, end quote. And then additionally from low underscore Jeff, quote, any thoughts on the Udoka speculation, which I guess is more about Nurse's future in Toronto, end quote. So I have some stuff that I'll say about this, but I want to start out with your, like the flashbulb thoughts from Trey. Yeah, from the from the top of my head, it's it's clear that Nick Nurse is a good coach. We obviously won a championship with him. I think that there were faced at like an intersection where certain philosophies that he's digged into, such as uh, trapping hard, um, really relying on chaos and deflections defensively, has kind of reached to a point where it's I would say we're at a negative return. Teams have gotten a lot better, and there's just more players in the league like. Um, Trey Young, Luka Doncic, who are able to both exploit the the defense through manipulation and then also simply just still be able to get to the rim and force a rotation that you don't want to that leads to tons of open threes. And people are hitting them more often than than ever. Um, what I want to see like going forward is adjustments in philosophy more so than a, a coaching change, typically, if just to keep status quo. But if we weren't able to like get sort of that impasse, I would welcome a co- coaching change if that's going to bring some sort of offensive cohesion because you can clearly see the amount of isolations that they run with the lack of creation that we currently have on the roster shows that there's isn't really the right fit in terms of schematically like what we're where we're going. Yeah. You also mentioned not only are there guys who are good at breaking down and reading the Raptors defense, but there are more guys like Nas Reed or Dean Wade. These are very different players, but the one thing that they have in common on separate teams, Cleveland and Minnesota, is that they're great at keeping advantage alive, making decisions with the ball after they've put the ball on the floor. And those are two guys who play 
Dean Wade as a larger wing, Nas Reed as a big man, and guards typically are very good at keeping advantage alive. The role players in the NBA, it's been more of a transition over the past couple of years to it's not just the three and D, it's not just like you stand in the corner. It's that these guys against the moving defense can make a lot more plays that are progressive. And the Raptors defense doesn't, or at least prior to Pirtle especially, didn't really account for that progression from the rest of the NBA. As far as Nurse being a good coach, I think Nurse is a good coach. I think the problem currently is the locker room. Um, Doug Smith reported on this today. Um, There's stuff swirling around. I can confirm that much. Stuff swirling around, though, isn't necessarily an indication of a breakup coming. It's just that it's being talked about by parties across the league. The Ime Adoka stuff, I have no idea about. The nurse stuff, there's been stuff bubbling up for some time. And that certainly doesn't mean anything concrete. But um, if if the Raptors and nurse did part ways, I wouldn't be surprised. And it, it's more so to do with not not even philosophy or anything like that. I think that, as you said, Nurse is a pretty good coach. Why that philosophy came in was probably more so to shore up their deficiencies in the half court. And they're trying to, you know, rise the tide on that end with turnovers. And we've talked about this. You know this. Everybody knows this. But anyway, it's it's probably more so to do with the personalities, harmonious um, team building, all that kind of stuff. So that's out in the ether. I can say that I've heard stuff. I can say that I have no idea what the Raptors are going to do. The Ime Udoka stuff, as far as I know, viewing this is not only a very controversial topic because it's about workplace imbalances, but it's also there's like a racial overtones on the conversation that make me not a great person to talk about it. Now, Trey. Yes. I'm not going to nominate you as the person to talk about it. Yeah. I'm just saying for that reason, Emil Odoka, I don't know if I have any good insights. Do you have any good insights? I'm happy to just move on. No, I'll, I'll, I'll speak on it. If if that were to happen, I think it's a major slap in the face to all women who, who watch these games every every week, every day, and showing just a lack of care and effort in trying to get things right and trying to have good people in your organization. The Raptors, a big thing heading to the pandemic is the Raptors made a huge stand um, for racial issues, equality, things like that. But which in most situations, most corporations, where there's an impasse of where production and money and results come in the way, typically morality goes on the back burner. The Raptors would be doing the exact same thing, so it would be really hard for me as a fan to believe the things that they say or any other movements or causes that they're a part of and still think it's based out of like some sort of altruism or, genu- or being genuine. And so not to go in on Doug, who this, yeah. this is his report or anything like that, but Doug... Um, he brings up the question that is on everybody's mind. He brings up the, I think for a lot of people, he's assuming the default position, which is for a lot of people is that trust the organization to do their due diligence. And that's that's kind of what Doug posits in the article is that we don't know a lot about these situations. You, if the Raptors decide that they want to go with Ime Udoka, then that means that they did their due diligence. The Raptors are also a team who has done their due diligence on Terrence Davis. They also did their due diligence on Rodion's Kurks. And it's just like, so there's a history with the team. I wouldn't consider the Raptors the gold standard as far as um, promoting or protecting women in the organization, or at least the values that go with those things. So um That, of course, can be wrong. That can change over time. Things can be learned, all this kind of stuff. But it remains up in the air. We'll see what happens with that kind of stuff. Do you want to get to the really brainy basketball stuff? Let's do it. Okay. So, Caitlin Cooper, who was on last episode, had a great question. She always has really good questions for the mailbag. The first, what are you currently most curious about in basketball? The second, in their most ideal forms, which do you think is the most difficult to defend, both as it pertains to Toronto's scheme and the NBA at large? Rim roll, short roll, or pop? And she adds, there's only one right answer. So I'll say this right away. 
I'll answer that second part. I'm curious to hear what you think. I think it is the rim roll, and I don't feel it's particularly close. The short roll, of course, it, it's if you have a really good player there, like a Draymond Green, for example, who was like he's been a short roll king. He's made great progressive reads out of the short roll. It's still not as big a deal to me as the roll because the backup in the short roll is to make that push shot. Yeah, and as we've seen, the Raptors they have guys who are really good in the push shot range. They still are very low efficiency in the half court and just overall. It's not the best shot you can get. The And it also brings up what Caitlin talked about. If you want to know more specifically, go back to that episode. But Caitlin talked about how maybe strong side and weak side help. We shouldn't be thinking about it in those types of terms. It's that she's saying if there's a rim runner, maybe you want to bring the help from the strong side instead of the weak side, which is kind of you know, if we think about how NBA defenses are oriented, you typically bring it from the weak side, the low man, all that kind of stuff. She posited that you should bring from the strong side because that's a larger point of strength. That's all great. You can hear her talk about it. But the reason why she's worried about where help comes from was because of in that situation, a rim runner. Having somebody at the rim is a super big deal. And also like short roll passing is the famous like talked about version you can still pass out of a full-on rim run. Like, yeah. players do it all the time. Also, the best rim runners, they contort the defense into tags, brushes, all types of different, you know, things that they have to do to make sure that that doesn't go that well. The defense, first and fo- foremost, wants to stop stuff at the rim. And then the pop, just big men don't shoot well enough for that to be the case. There's going to be a couple big men who you have to sell it for. But for me, it's the role. Do you have any thoughts, Trey? First, first question for you, does Jakob's presence, and he's shown some ability to play at level, change that perspective for you at all? No. No? Like, okay. I Teams can get better. Like, the Raptors have gotten better. Yes. Certainly they have. But as far as just, like, the baseline saying what is the most dangerous, I think for the Raptors, I think for the league at large, it's the role. There are some teams, like Milwaukee, who they're particularly going, they're going to be particularly good against it because their guards are really gay great at lock and trail and their bigs are massive and great defenders like Giannis and Lopez near the rim is an insane flex but that's the case for you I'll swing the first part of the question back to you what are you currently most curious about in basketball for me I think what I'm most curious about is with um, players like Embiid and Jokic they they have the most mismatches on the court of any type of player. There's very few people that can defend their type of size. And with the amount of skill that bigs are coming in the league, are these players going to be the new engines for contending teams? Because a player like Jokic, his ability to pass, his ability to pass, shoot, and create in the post creates so many different options and creates probably the easiest amount of offense heading um, with any sort of combination that you can have, because they're very easy to play with. Whereas compared to, I think, probably early 2010s, the thought process was that wings were going to dominate the league and we're going to have four wings, one big, and we're going to have one player who's dominating the ball for it, four in, what, four out, one in, four out. But guys like Jokic, you can play with another big because they have the passing ability. They can operate within a short amount of space. They don't need as as much spacing as, um, say, like a wing player, for example. And they're generating significantly higher offense than the um, than the wing oriented offenses that we're seeing in the league. So I'm wondering, guys like Wemby, Chet coming into league are going to be the new norm. This that's really interesting because what is we we talk about this, yeah. our dear friend. Tim talks about this organizers like you know <laughs> point guards and stuff like that. Yeah. it's actually s who did such a great video where he talked to like Raphael Barlow he talked to me he talked to a bunch of people for Steve Dangle podcast network their YouTube channel about Wembenyama and the advent of the big man changing the NBA and I think my answer here is the same as my answer was there that big men are emulating some of the scoring skills of smaller players but very few of them are actually, you know, emulating the organizer and playmaking skills of the smaller players. And that's what makes it tough not only to 
make them the focal point of an offense the same way that guards are currently. Like, of course, Embiid and Jokic are, are different. They start there. But for it to become a wide phenomenon, you have to have so many of those guys to completely change the league over. And the reason why the Nuggets struggle against the Raptors is because they typically don't have Jokic bring the ball up the floor and you can move teams into the back end of the shot clock by containing and pressuring post entry or above the break entry. Typically, if you're trying to like get it to a big man above the break, you can play really aggressive deny defense because the smaller player will be able to catch up on the perimeter even if they're overplaying it. And then post entry, you can shade that heavily, sometimes even doubling before the catch, right? Fronting with that backside help to make sure that these guys, they have to spend a significant amount of time of the clock to get the ball to them. So that kind of stuff, I wonder if teams just start having guys like Embiid and Jokic just bring the ball to the floor. I wonder what the counter is, but that is like super interesting. And having seven foot three guys organize offense and set up is like one of the most interesting things that you could possibly have happen in basketball. It's what's, what are your thoughts like coming back to that about the, the post entry and bring the ball up the floor? Like um, them bringing the ball up is obviously like the main counter. I do think it, it takes away um, from the amount of um, crashing or like the stress that it obviously puts on a defense if Jokic is facing a flat defense and there's four people staring at him, he's not creating the same amount of advantages if he has the ball five feet from the rim. So I think a player probably we, we still have to see when we play, but like a player like that who who's shown the ability and fluidity to get to the rim, dribble the ball up at the top of the key, maybe the answer to that that question. And you've kind of seen people do it at like a pseudo level like an Embiid and Anthony Davis at certain times where they operate as like a pseudo point guard and still are able to create those advantages. But um, like you said, um, these big men are very special players. I'm just hoping to, I'm hoping to see whether that we're in a golden age of the time or that there, or that this is, there's more to come. Like we saw with like the, the big rise in point guards or point guards being able to score and lead offenses, which wasn't a thing in like the eighties and nineties. It's, yeah, it's it's like uh, changing the terms of engagement yeah. is the is the interesting aspect of it. You can also change the terms of engagement on how you deal with cars. And let me tell you this, Queensway Automotive Group, which is the sponsor of this podcast, if they can get you in a vehicle to help you out, if they want to get you out of a lease, Volkswagen, Mitsubishi, Mazda, they have a ton of cars available, uh, new pre-owned they have a ton from ajax to all types of places across the gta they have locations they can bring cars to you and if you just need help with anything regarding cars you need help fixing it you need help knowing like hey what's wrong with my car you need quotes to bring around and shop around all this kind of stuff they'll be able to help you out they help out this podcast by sponsoring us they wanted to sponsor people within the gta they love sports they love all this kind of stuff and yes, they're the sponsor of the podcast. You can click the link in the bio if you need anything, any type of help getting into a lease, out of one, help with your car, advice, anything like that. Queensway Automotive Group, link in the bio, click away. Thank you to them for sponsoring. Somebody else who is very, very good <laughs> at hooking up people with what they want. Freddie Revis, who does the Confederacy of Dunks podcast on Raptors Republic as well. People love that podcast. Very funny. And he also, man, we ran out of it, Oleg and I, yeah. makes some of the best hot sauce. Like, he makes hot sauce. Oh, jeez. And um, yeah, it's fantastic. Oh, I, I met him at the event. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And, and and we we hung out um, at the three-on-three. Three. Yes. He, yeah. he showed me the hot sauce. Yes. Good vibes. So, anyway, he asks, yeah. of the guys on the roster shooting below 35% from three, who are you most confident will one day shoot higher than 35% from three? This one's easy. And I'm just going to say it, it's Pascal. Pascal will not always have his role be like this. And he's shot better than 35% in a more pared down role. Um, and also like, if you believe Nick Nurse about the 18th month program, if you believe in the NOAA board, I don't know if you do. Maybe that gets better. Um, 35%, like here's the thing. 35% is not a high clip. Like that's not even, that's not even, you know, average in the league anymore. It used to be like if a guy was north of 36%, like 
like you had like Alan Crabb on the Portland Trailblazers in 2016. And it's like this guy hit takes four threes a game and hits like 37 or 38 percent. And like that's a shooter. Yeah. And then they he had the Frohawk. So did James Harden. So did Nick Young. So did Dame. So did CJ. Like everybody had it. That's like Halcyon days, 2016. I think it's Pascal. Does anybody in come to mind for you? Um, I think Pascal's the easy answer, obviously, because he's shown yeah. that from like a, a data perspective. But I'm gonna I'm gonna say Scotty. Just simply A, because he's going to get the opportunity. So he's going to get lots of reps and be able to take a lot of shots. And the touch that you've seen um from short mid-range or even some of these longer twos over the last um month and change shows that he really has great touch so i think that will parlay over time with the added reps and the nick nurse program over time. so i want to ask these two questions back to back so hj the four underscore asks could you please discuss the organizational belief in being able to teach three-point shooting the raps front office has expressed confidence in being able to teach non-shooters to shoot the three have they succeeded is there evidence from other organizations that this approach has been successful? End quote. I'm going to take this one off the top. Go. Pascal Siakam is a much better shooter now than when he entered the league. However, Ben Pfeiffer, who did one of his great retrospective scouts where he goes and looks at somebody like their college film for Pascal, like, seven years after he was drafted and he looks at the college film. He looks at the numbers and Pascal was one of the highest volume long two shooters in all of college. Something that wasn't talked about very often about him coming. Like we, I wasn't a Raptors analyst. I wasn't covering the team at the point in time when he was drafted, but I didn't hear that from anywhere. Did yeah. you hear that from anybody? No. It was just like, he's long, he's athletic. He like runs big. the break, yeah. but there was a lot of like underlying shooting talent there that wasn't talked about. Ben brought it to light. Ben and I also did um, a podcast talking about, you know, his retrospective scout. If you're interested, it's kind of cool how he was looking for indicators of why Pascal would be a star back in his New Mexico state film. So Pascal counts to some degree. Norman Powell really turned himself into like an incredible shooter with the Raptors. Fred Van Vliet, Maybe to some degree, but he also he could shoot before he came in. The Raptors have been trying to teach a slew of wings and bigs. And I think Pascal is a success story to some degree. Norman Powell is like far and away the best success story for their their shooting development. And otherwise, I think it's been a lot of guys who haven't really hit anything like that. And yeah. certainly... I don't know of a single guy who became like an incredible motion shooter. Nope. That was that's and here's the thing. Motion shooting. That is it. Teams adjusted over the past. You know, we talked about Halcyon days, 2016 teams have changed, man. Defense has changed. They'll run you off the line and it's like shoot while in motion and they'll run you off the line. And if you're a Raptors fan, you know how this defense goes. They'll run you off the line. And then they'll bring the guy from back here to contest your shot. So it's like you have to move and hit shots a lot of the time. Some guys are lucky enough to play with these like incredible megastars who just give you like these wide open set shots nonstop. But when defense is cracked down and when games actually matter, you got to hit them on the move. You got to put a dribble down, sidestep, like all these types of things. And so I don't think the Raptors have a win in that regard yet. What do you what do you think? I think um, overall point, they've shown that you can develop a catch-and-shoot shooter, I would say. I'm pretty confident in saying that. Um, you've had some good returns at OG, Pascal, Norm. Um, Fred, I wouldn't really consider as a success story. He was already a fairly decent shooter in college. Well, it's also OG is an interesting one because it's like he started shooting, what, 38% like from the moment he hit the NBA? Yeah. It's like, was this his summer at Indiana? Did the Raptors get like two months with him pre-draft where they're like, we're going to tweak this stuff. This is how it's going to work. Like, I, I don't really know where that begins and ends because he just shot it well from when he came into the league. Yeah, that makes sense. I think um, like you like you said, um, from a motion standpoint, um, that's usually the biggest indicator that separates like star perimeter players from an all NBA all-star level. You see guys like Jason Tatum who do that on a very high clip and that's a huge separator for him. 
Like the Raptors haven't clearly developed that as well. I think uh, a big problem that is a just who we pick. We're depending on very low volume three point shooters to become high volume motion shooters, and also the type of offenses that were run aren't dictated upon motion and they're not getting a lot of reps where they're taking shots or running a flare and coming off or running a hammer. You saw that a bit in like the Chris Finch offense with like Norman guys like that, but currently we're not doing that. We're more yeah. of a standstill team. And it was especially like having Norm is the, the Raptors run like plenty of the same sets and the, the now the Wolves and the Raptors run the same sets. When Nate Bjorkman went to Indiana, the Raptors and the Pacers ran like there's coaching trees, right? Yeah. And, Watching, I wrote about this before the season when I was breaking down like how OG comes off of wide pins because he does come off of wide pins all the time. The difference between OG Ananobi coming off of a wide pin and Norman Powell as far as like turning it downhill and being able to catch and shoot while carrying that momentum like sideways is night and day. Like Norm is one of the best in the NBA. OG is very underwhelming in that. And so what can the Raptors teach? Man, I think... We need to be like, you need an even longer case study. I think the NBA at large has been able to develop corner three-point shooters, standstill corner three-point shooters. I think that has happened. Above the break, I'm not certain. Uh, Motion, I'm not certain at all. That's why it's so important to get good scouts like Robel, who before he ended up working for an NBA team, uh, was talking about how great Tyrese Maxey is despite him having no indicators really that he would be a good three-point shooter. He was like, I watched the film. I've seen this guy shoot a ton of shots in the in-between area. I think it'll translate. He's in the second season in a row of hitting higher than 40% from three and from catch and shoot. He's remarkable. Nice one, Robel. Always much love to you on the pod. But you need guys who can recognize like the the film. Yeah. Um, the Raptors haven't been picking the the sexy film shooters. They've been picking the the length you know, each year. We'll figure it out along the way. Speaking of length, this one's pretty fun. Um, Amina Poco asks, make a case for Kevin Garnett as a top 10 player of all time if he played in 2022. This one I like a lot. I feel, pretty, I feel pretty confident. There's film of Kevin Garnett playing with Team USA, beating everybody up and down the court scoring against wings, scoring against other bigs, playing in space. We look at Pascal as a guy who, when he has the space provided, especially when he's healthy, can just like completely cook guys, tear the limb off the bone, you know, really make them shake and move and beat them to the punch. Kevin Garnett, to me, if he played in 2022 and his athleticism, the his handle and his jumper, I think that he is probably like, he, you could run him in a lot of the same isolation sets that you run Pascal in. Yeah. And I think he performs better than Pascal. I think he also is as like good enough as an athlete that you could run him in a lot of the shooting sets that you run Carl Anthony Towns is. I, I don't think, I don't think he's be as good a three point shooter as cat cat is like one of the oh, greatest I mean. ever, but I think that Kevin Garnett in the more, you know, space and pace and space offense, he would absolutely dominate guys in space. His finesse was incredible. And he could also like, I just think he'd be unbelievable. Short roll, roll, pop. He could do it all. He could shred guys in isolation. He'd be very good in motion sets, making reads. And then defensively, you can look to Draymond Green's impact as like a communicator. You can look to Draymond Green's impact as a guy who takes the right, like the root efficiency and then you see guys like Evan Mobley, for example, who they move well and they immediately have length and they're super effective on the defensive end. And it's just like Kevin Garnett, I think easily would be like a top 10 player of all time if he played in 2022. He just he had so many skills that weren't yeah. as a skinnier big man in that day and age when he played like the early 2000s where the game was played like 96 points per game was the league average or something like that. Now... Hell, dude, he would be incredible. Uh, I'm curious what you think. I kind of took up all the space on that one. My fault. <laughs> no, no. I, I think it's definitely possible. I think with the added space that you have, Kevin Garnett probably becomes even more dangerous as a passer, and you can use him in a lot of um, Joe yeah. and sets where he either can work as a keeper, and he's one of probably the most one of the more athletic fours you've ever seen, 
where he has both a handle and speed to be able to take a keeper, put it on the floor, create advantages for others, and operate as, sort of as a, a pseudo-engine um, playmaker where he becomes really dangerous in that set. And then obviously on the defensive end, he can play like a, like the Lakers, for example, Anthony Davis plays it like a center field position where he's both guarding the ball handler and the rolling big at the same time, which gives him a lot of flexibility to operate as a roamer weak side, go out, create chaos, and create deflections from there. He can operate that within the same same realm and probably even better. So it's a defensively, I think like he's probably a perennial defensive player of the year. And then from an offense perspective, he's already shown he's got a he has the touch to probably become a decent corner three point shooter, and he'd be able to put the ball on the floor a lot more because you're dealing with less size. Um, less size and also more spacing around the court. I think he'd be able to become an above the break three point shooter. Too. So? I just, yeah, like you see Brooke Lopez do it. That's Brooke fair. Lopez and KG had very similar, um, like as far as mid range, yeah. the way because Brooke Lopez was also like a, a face up mid range shooter who was like buttery from there, um, could put one dribble down and sidestep into that. Like KG did all that kind of stuff. I, I think KG would have been able to do it. It's it's a really interesting question. Thank you for the cue. Next one from Mohammed at Mo Square. Quote, an overarching one. Is it arcing, 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 arching, arching, overarching, overarching, whichever it is. An overarching one, but you were given the keys to run the wraps for the next 18 months. What's your general plan for steering the franchise? I want you to take this one. Oh. I know you have plans. I know you have dreams. Oh, boy. This, this is a tough one. Like you're kind of pigeonholed because they made such like a hard turn already in, in February. Yeah, they they put you on a path already, but they also have a huge summer coming up, so you still have lots of room to decide. But they gave you less. Yes, you know, it, yeah. there's way less wiggle room. I think, and people aren't gonna like this, but I think you in the summer you my plan is like you would have to trade OG. You you need to you, you need to. Um, replenish the cupboard both in a prospect set standpoint and then also just create create room for Scotty to grow as a player. It's clear that one OG seems like based on everything we've heard that there's a good chance that he already might leave and that he, that he wants a bigger role. There probably there's an intersection where that probably is never going to happen so you probably need to make that trade and you get more tertiary players that's going to fit around Pascal um, Pascal and Scotty and them operating as your your lead playmakers. Um, in terms of the the rest of the team, uh, and Fred, I would I would definitely re-sign him if he would be willing to sign something like within a two to three year contract. I think he's shown over the last half of the season that he, there's still all star play left, and even from a defensive standpoint, he's been able to. I he's think some of the quicker guards he probably can't guard anymore like from an elite standpoint but guys like a bradley beal even shade to a standpoint that he he did fairly decent on who aren't predicated on speed as much and more more with timing he can guard fairly well so i would re-sign him as well and and keep gary and the idea would be to have a young bench led by whatever first round pick you get from og and a decent amount of other um bench and role players who would come from that trade to ideally develop a young team on the bench, similar as the bench mob while you have this starting five who's playoff caliber. Okay. So you want to trade OG. Let's use the three first round picks as a proxy. Sure. Let's say that's like the, that's a high end of his value. Yeah. Let's say you can go any from where from high end to medium end. Like what are you trying to get back in a trade? I think you need to, um, you have to get a trade within this lottery. There's teams like Indiana, um, OKC, who both need um, a tertiary score to play off of their star and also need his defense, where it's kind of a no-brainer to trade with those teams. And you get a first-round pick, and you're ideally either A, pairing those two picks to get two rookies that are going to develop over time while our core, our core of four or five guys are leading us to the playoffs while they develop, or B, using that as a war chest to eventually trade for another star and giving you more time to eventually um, have that capital. Because right now, I don't think we do. Okay. 
Yeah, that's that's a really interesting one. So yeah, that's that's just, that's probably good. That makes sense for me. I had this awesome conversation at the live show. Yeah. After every single break, I would walk out in the audience and I'd get to talk to somebody who like they had thoughts about the team or basketball at large. And somebody came up to me and they were talking about how why can't people see it that you can't win with Scotty and Pascal as your main two? And I said, that's probably right. Like you probably can't. And the reason why is you have to be uncommonly great like so uncommonly great to lead a team to a championship that it's very easy to say what guys will and won't win MVP. It's very easy to say which guys will and won't be a finals MVP. Like it doesn't take the most skill to realize that type of stuff. Like it's the guys who can do it. It's pretty inherent. Like Maybe some people didn't see it with Giannis. I don't know why they didn't see it with Giannis, but it was easy for me to see like Giannis can win a chip as the best player. He has what it takes. The really the finesse part is that those guys are rarely available. They they don't get drafted every year. Sometimes they don't get drafted for four years. Sometimes it doesn't happen. What do you do with the team in the interim? I had a great conversation with this guy about how you have to maximize the players on the roster both as their value for when they're going out the door and how you get them to play while they're there and how harmonious the team is. It's like, so the number one thing I do is if I'm the Raptors and now I'm running it, I get all the info uh, on who's really upset. If I can massage away the problems of the three wings, Scotty, Pascal, and OG, I am very interested in keeping those guys going forward the next 18 months. If I can have all those guys contracted into the future, of course, Scotty's there. But if we re-sign Pascal to that second max, which he's going to lose about $93 million on because of, you know, not all NBA, which is good for the Raptors, bad for him. Um, I don't like counting pockets, so I just say it's bad overall because he's losing a lot of money. And you you sign OG to a... I guess his third contract at that point in time. I would prefer to do that. I think you do keep this team in, I guess, the tax. Just maintain all that kind of stuff. Treat Toronto like the massive market that it is. I'm not selling guys off. I'm letting next year ride. And I know Mo disagrees with this. I I, I follow Mo. I like Mo a lot. I know he'll disagree with this. But I'm letting it ride for next season. I'm seeing what develops as far as chemistry for these guys. I'm getting more data. Okay. But if you're in the scenario where you try to, say, offer OG an extension, he says, no, let's ride out the year. You're riding out the year. Um, I try and offer him an extension. He says, no. Yeah. Summertime. I say, like, yeah, because I'm, I'm in charge. I'm talking to OG. You're, you're, Tonight, you were I'm on the phone. Yeah, I'm on the phone and he says, he says, no, I don't like how I'm used. I actually, I had a really nice walk down Spadina last summer, but Toronto, I'm not really, I don't really want to be here anymore. Anything like that. And I say, okay, where do you want to go? Take that into consideration. Try and get the best package that appeals to all sides. And I would, if you're trading OG, that creates a trickle down effect for me that I am fully shifting into um trying to get younger players around scotty because og is extremely complimentary to yes scotty but he's also extremely complimentary to fred and pascal and yak and if you trade away a guy who fits so like he fits everywhere so well you do have to kind of reset how you rebuild the team because you won't get another guy like og Agreed. And you have to be a lot more because you can't just plug in a defensive player of the year wing who shoots like really well from three into the team anymore. It becomes really untenable no matter who you're getting back. So then I think that makes you shift the team more so into like the, I guess, version of Scotty. And then I probably look to Pascal and Fred um, at the height of their value, um, move them somewhere. Pascal, perhaps really valuable after just signing a max contract. Who knows when he's all eligible, all that kind of stuff. We've gone long on this one. But Mo, thank you for the question. We also have one from Baker. He's been on 
my podcast, who is a birthday brother, twin with Trey, quote, if you both were to coach an NBA team, what aspects of the game would you like to be your calling card or claim to fame? A higher powered offense, versatile defense, balanced approach, etc. Who would you want on your coaching staff? I'll let you go first. Mm, I'm, the, the more fun answer is obviously um, offense, but I, I, I'm going to say defense. Just simply because when you have like these like new advents and like inventions in scheme, they're usually longer lasting and leads to into instantaneous winning right away. You saw Thibodeau come in, they're icing pick and rolls. They have a center field center who can guard who can guard everything and communicate. They become a 50-win team like almost immediately. The Raptors seemingly a team that wasn't known for being like a very hard defensive team gets Nick Nurse, we're going to blitz everything. We're we're going to let bad shooters shoot a million threes. They become one of the best defensive teams like almost right away. So I think that's probably the way I would lean. And then if in terms of like staff, that's more of a, a tricky question. I, I would lean like more skilled development guys, like guys like a Phil Handy who are who a lot of players like would say like this is the person that helped me get to another level. Um What's the Spurs shooting coach's name? No, he's with OKC now. I can't remember his name. But he helped Kawhi credits him for his three-point shooting. My, I think my goal would be getting the best of the best at whatever their micro skill is at and surrounding your young players around there. So I think that like there's a, there's a selfish answer and a less selfish answer. People attribute defense to coaches and offense to players. You notice that, yeah. Like you mentioned, you mentioned, you mentioned Thibodeau. You didn't mention, like, of course, you mentioned like center field, center. You start icing, picking rolls, but it's like defense. Everybody thinks is like, you know, energy, mind. Like it's not so much about technique, whether that's true or not, right? But if you want to be like a coach who's well regarded, you you get your guys to defend, and if they can't do anything offensively, like sure, some people say Nick Nurse can't coach an offense. But, you know, people also – he's still called one of the best coaches in the NBA. Yeah. I go defense first, not for that reason, though. <laughs> it's so I can see, like, Tim and James tweeting about, like – the and, and Charles about, like, the beautiful grind <laughs> of how, like, this is real basketball. And as the decision maker, I'm going to have a burner and maybe a real account where I retweet them all the time. Like, yes, these guys see it. <laughs> that That's what I want. Like I just wanna I wanna really appease the sickos. That's a crime ball. Yeah, exactly. This one's a quick one. It's from at TMN underscore O four underscore, um, friend of the podcast. Quote, Team Canada starting five, assuming everyone is available. End quote. Easy. Jamal, Shay, Wiggs, Kelly Olenek, and for you, you sicko, Zach Eady. That's what I'm calling it. No, that's that's a pretty easy one. Um, I think you kinda would have to go like I don't think Edie's can probably play pro ball after seeing that game. I broke my soul. You, I don't think you could start Chris Boucher against Team USA. Uh, do you do Dwight Powell? Uh, I guess you, you would have to. I don't. Could you put like RJ Power Forward, Wiggins Power Forward, and hope for the FIBA ball that you probably get ruined? You probably get I, ruined. like. Zach Eady is the next great FIBA center, bro. He's a big plotting guy. He's just in the paint. All right, I, I'll I'll go Boucher. I'll go Boucher um, Olenek as the bigs and hope for the best. Okay, here this one kind of relates. You talked about micro skills, um, especially as who you're putting on your um, coaching staff. Sorry, Baker, I didn't really answer that aspect of the question. But from Jonathan Chen, uh, one of the best people covering Canadian basketball currently. For those who are listening and and want to see that covered and want to read about that, quote: What's your favorite micro skill to analyze, and which players? display it okay end quote i asked pascal about this embarrassingly in the early season after he and tyrese maxi faced off and i asked him about how and, and i mean embarrassingly because pascal laughed at me when i said it and so he uh she told me it's good you're willing to ask those types of questions even after a loss i didn't it's a tough question to ask it's like you would have to know the player but i asked like about he, how he and maxi both achieve a lot of their success by being like fantastic movers on the court. Yeah. And, and for fans who and like little basketball sickos, I think they know exactly what I'm saying. But for Pascal, who's more geared to hearing questions that aren't like that from the media, he was probably like, hmm? And that's kind of how he responded. He's like, I don't know. But 
you know, Maxi had like 44 tonight. So I want to play a little more like him going forward. And uh, I like special movers. Shea Gilgis Alexander, the reason why I, in his second year in the NBA, was saying like, oh yeah, this guy could win an MVP, which is, you know, people knew SGA would be good, but that's a lot earlier than most people. Why? Because of how he moves. Yeah. Like it just having a guy who moves strangely means that every defender who comes across him, their brain hasn't mapped out those movements yet. You've been you've been seeing players move similarly over time. And there's a guy who's not only like absurdly athletic, but does it like an octopus. It's like, how, how could you possibly stay in front? And the answer you don't. SGA is like maybe the most prolific driver in the history of basketball. Pascal Siakam, he is a guy who, yes, he he's worked on like his skill and his finesse, but movement really, he built out his game. Tyrese Maxey, the shooting has come along, but he would have been an NBA player just with movement. Markel Fultz, movement. That's that's what I like, Jonathan. How about you, Trey? Um, for me, I would say it's pass manipulation. Mm. Yeah, because it's the I would say like for the playoffs, it's wait, is D'Lo your goat, please? <laughs> I am. I am a D'Lo fan. <laughs> um, being able to um, dictate and create um, advantages simply by using your eyes or using um, a shoulder or the way that you're moving your body to create a advantage or rotation that wouldn't have happened any other way is super valuable, especially like in playoffs times where you're facing the best defense all the time. They know your sets and you're likely going to see a man every time that you break down a defender and get to the rim. But if you're able to manipulate who's coming your way and you have an, and you already know that read, you're able to create offense in the tightest spaces and create buckets. And I think that's a big reason why Boston lost because they didn't do that very well in the finals. That's and also that's like that's a big time Scotty thing. Yeah, is like if a defense is trying to catch up to you, and even like just as you're catching the ball before you catch the ball, you can you can affect the rotation they make, and it really will make your next read easier. Is like that we talk about shot prep. Yeah, and scouts coaches love to talk about shot prep. Um, but like and and also great scout Josh Codinera talks about shot prep, but he also talks about like point guard eyes, right? And being able to manipulate without the ball, all this kind of stuff is like, that's next level. That's fantastic. Scotty's a great example of a guy who does that. Next question is from uh, Best Kept Secret at Coco Zafreen. Quote, in a scenario where seating or conference weren't an issue, which current NBA team would you want to see in a series against the current iteration of the Raptors and why? End quote. This one's easy for me. I want the Cavs matchup. Like, I, I would love that series. I think it would be awesome. No, that'd be fun. I think for me, I would say the Kings. Oh, man. That would be a ball. <laughs> and actually, you know what the thing is? The last time the Raptors played the Kings and beat them and completely yeah. locked down like the best offense in the NBA, it was without Pirtle. It was when the Raptors were their Raptorsiest. Yeah. When they were 3-0 and before they became 3-1 and against Cleveland, it was the Raptors being their Raptorsiest. And largely because of the way that the Raptors play prior to getting Pirtle, the two teams that they could defend well with their crazy hectic style was the Kings and the Cavs. So maybe both of our matchups are significantly less interesting with Pirtle there. But who knows? I'd I'd love to see more of it anyway, because it, it really is quite interesting. This one is from Kai, Makai Bruce, quote, in what areas do you think Scotty Barnes thrives as a defender and what can Nurse do to get him in these spots more, end quote. So this is, seems like asking Nurse to not put him at the point of attack anymore. It is. Um, That's like, hey, don't put uh, Scotty at the point of attack. I've said on this podcast before, I've said on the reaction podcast before, I asked Nurse about who decides, he or Scotty, he sidestepped the question. I don't want to berate him with that like six times to get an answer. Um, I've also asked Scotty. Scotty has been asked by the reporters. Sidesteps. They're like, yeah, like I want I want the matchup, but they don't say whether or not Nurse says no sometimes, anything like that. Um, I would prefer Scotty less at the point of attack. Something he does well as a defender, though, is involved with the point of attack. And it's he's very good at taking up space when switching. And I don't mean like after he switches, locking down switches. I mean that 
the process of switching can be kind of messy in the NBA. Yeah. It's not always the cleanest thing to do. And Scotty gets a lot. And I mean a lot of steals in these, well, actually, I'll just say switching, yes, but aggressive coverages. Scotty has pretty active hands for passing lanes when blitzing, when blowing up actions, and especially as the guy at the back end, he does a pretty good job of um, like blowing up actions and doing stuff like that. I think that's um, an area he does quite well in. Uh, it's not, you know, accentuated a bunch by really good point of attack defense. Maybe that comes along, but I don't know. What do you think? I think, um, obviously, I would greatly like not want to see him at the point of attack anymore. That, I beg. But um, as um, a weak side roamer, I think I think long term, that's probably where he's going to thrive just because he has the length and both the instincts to jump in and, and create havoc. He can block shots. He can zone up the weak side and come back and create deflections there. And then that leads into fast breaks. And then also he's just outside of the action where the Raptors can still have like the inertia of what their defense is and and be able to peel switch and do all of that very technical stuff and still maintain um, some structure on the on the back line. So I would say that would long term makes the most sense. So this question is from Catherine Ann Bird. Are the Raps a team constructed for the last generation of basketball, particularly as we enter an era where the best players are small ball busting behemoths like Giannis, Joel and Jokic? Are they more equipped to deal with yesteryear's superstars than up-and-coming ones, end quote? So Trey and I have talked about this very thing. Like on this podcast, we talked about how the Raptors' defense doesn't account for how role players have progressed over the past couple of years, really. But we also talked a bit about how the Raptors do well against the Jokic. In a playoff series, we've also talked about those, like, can you actually line up against Jokic for seven games? Like, the Raptors do it one game at a time. Yeah. Can they? Can they do that? Um, against Jokic, can they do it against Joel? I think that the Raptors, the defense they currently play, and I guess the team that is constructed, is more built for yesteryear. I know everybody, God, I heard it so much. <laughs> oh, God, I heard it so much from so many people. As I said, I don't think this team is the future of basketball. I think they figured a couple things out. But you know what it took? One off season. For other teams to say, we're going to offensive rebound a little bit more. We're going to pay a little bit more attention to the turnover differential. And guess what? More talented teams just started doing things that the Raptors did. And they started doing it like just as well. Yeah. And they did it in, in a, like they did it in a way that wasn't completely overhauling. And then the Raptors lost those advantages because in their team, there is flawed in its creation. Of course, it's flawed in its construction. I think that they are built for yesteryear. Bonus question. Should a version of the Kings offense with Scotty and Jakob in the Sabonis role be the goal for next season in the long term? Um, yeah, I'll let you answer this one. There's one more um, bonus question that I'll take. I don't think that's achievable based on the construction <laughs> of the team. <laughs> like, <laughs> like zoom actions with Scotty and Pascal. Like only so much can get done. Yeah. But um I think the easy, <laughs> I think the easiest point of offense, like for Scotty, um, would be Sabonis esque, whereas he's uh, operating as um, a high post initiator. He can throw the ball down to Jakub, which they actually have a pretty good connection there. He can put the ball on the floor, back people down, which then leads to then leads to rotations where he can use his playmaking and weaponize it from there. So I think that can work. But Pascal obviously just does that at a much higher level. So how many reps are you going to give him in the scenario? Yeah, it's I don't think that it's tenable for the Raptors because like the reason why the Kings are able to do that is not only because of Sabonis, yes, of course, yeah. but because of the surrounding players. Like it's you know, like there's nobody on the Raptors who shoots like Keegan Murray. And Keegan Murray isn't even really the best shooter on the Kings. You know, like it's yeah. it's just it's tough. The yeah. Kings were the Kings made that trade. Why? Because they wanted to give Fox a chance. They thought Fox was good enough to be paired with another star. They thought that Sabonis was gettable as a star. So they thought we can put Sabonis here and we'll be greater than the sum of our parts. And that's what happened. And the right. Pacers did the exact same thing. Like it was a win-win trade. You and I at the time, I think we both said it's like, hey, that's a win-win. Yeah. I think you you liked that for the Kings, did you not? 
Initially, I liked it more for the Kings. I would I would lean yep. more Pacers today. But but both overall, both, obviously, I I love that trade for both teams. Yeah. Um, the Raptors that isn't available for the roster right now. I don't think. And then the last bonus question: Which one would you want to experience the most? The Last of Us Three, another Metal Gear game, or a Goat series about the events slash years leading up to Robert's Rebellion? As somebody who stopped playing The Last of Us Two based on the start of that game, not because I'm like in a Reddit edward or anything like that, just because I was like, damn, and I stopped playing. Um, the Last of Us 3 does not interest me that much. Of course, I'd be happy for it to be. Um, Metal Gear, cool and everything, but I read all the GOAT stuff. I love Game of Thrones. I'm one of those little losers who did the the Game of Thrones mods on Skyrim so I could be like Westeros Knight or whatever. Um, I would love a series on the Robert's Rebellion. So, yes, thank you for writing in. Goose asks, what's a niche basketball take you've been wanting to get off but haven't had the chance to? End quote, Trey. Oh, niche basketball. That's my, my dog in the, in the background. Okay. Uh, <laughs> niche basketball take. I would say um, you cannot win a championship with wing-oriented offense. I'll say that. Jason Tatum, RIP. <laughs> Damn. Um, okay. That my, my niche take, God, what is my niche take? My niche take is uh, you could still win a championship with a point guard who doesn't shoot the ball very well. That That is that – is, so you think, say, Mark Elk Fultz plus can win a championship. Bro, give me Fultz in a seven-game series. I'll t- I'll go to war for Fultz, dude. That's that's that is my greatest ever. Like he'll manipulate enough to get around it, you know. Um, Kyle Lowry still won games where he shot one of nine from three, bro. Okay, it's light. <laughs> okay, this next one is from Cooked at Get Fred a Floater and quote, uh, quote. Do you think the Raptors having a massive brain drain in their development slash FO staff over the years is the reason for their unusual mistakes over the last few years? End quote. I have a really good answer to this. I did it at the like around December, January, where I went over the Raptors, um, all of their transactions, basically. Um, I recommend you watch that video. It's like a really in-depth answer where I go over everything, truly. And the brain drain affects everybody, of course, and the Raptors have had a decent amount of brain drain. This is a tough one to answer though, because of it's pretty nebulous, like the yeah. brain drain aspect. Um, but also at get Fred a floater, Fred has been on high volume, one of the best mid range shooters in the NBA this year. So that's a cool development as far as that goes. Do you have any brain drain thoughts? It's it's hard to say from the fans perspective, because it's no one really knows exactly what each assistant coach does or anyone on the staff or front office. Yeah. Um, I would what I usually credit is just the the sh- the shift that they kind of made in their drafting approach where they really doubled down on trying to get these forwards who can play make and also defend so that you can create this um versatility. It like you said it took uh kind of a couple years to figure out that's not going to work. But um we missed out on opportunities where you don't pick Desmond Bain because his arm length isn't necessarily as long as you want and you pick somebody else, but thing, things like that. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> um, also, shout out to Robel. He recommended Bain. He wanted, actually, you know what? Robel was like, two guys I got my eye on, or three guys. He's like, Tired. four guys. Jeez, man. that draft. I understand why he got hired. He liked Devin Vassell. He liked Tyrese Maxey. He liked Jaden Ma- McDaniels. And he liked Desmond Bain. That is a crazy hit rate. All those guys are fantastic. Um, Next question from Shadow Marnik, Big Blue. Quote, do you think guys need to be held more accountable for being unable to defend what makes them great offensively? Some guys have great offensive process, but somehow can't make defensive reads to their own actions. Physical limitations exist, but guys be lost or wrong technique. End quote. Physical limitations is a really, really big deal. And I guess the thing is like, you know, you, you know how to spell. It's really hard to just spell words backwards on command. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I think that's, but like the physical limitations aspect is that like OG Ananobi on defense 
he gets wide and being wide on defense is really good because you can take up space and he moves quickly while being wide on offense where you need to get small and little and be explosive. Shea Alexander, for example, really explosive out of the small space on the court. Trey Young, like these guys get tiny and burst through spaces. OG, a lot of times, the reason why he falls over is when his feet get close together. It's like he's on stilts. If you get wide, that's where he's really strong. So, yeah, I'm glad you brought up the physical limitations, but I do like the spelling forwards and backwards thing, I think, is my answer. Yeah, I I don't think you look at the Raptors and, like, the current structure of the team and think that there's, like, no accountability. (laughs) (laughs) Their coach will walk out into the media and say (laughs) they're bad at basketball. (laughs) Like, Uh, we have a coach that, like, if you play bad, he will call you out in in the media immediately after the game. So I I don't think that's really an issue. And I think what a lot of people don't – well, I think they realize, but they don't put in consideration like the Raptors are executing one of the hardest defenses to run for 82 games. So you have those negative, um, you have those negative returns where the energy isn't there. They're playing um, Joel Embiid for 48 minutes, who's much bigger than obviously um, this is pre-deadline, but you have OG who's fronting him for 40 minutes, which is very difficult to do. And it leads to certain possessions where Joel Embiid's going to cast the ball and get an easy basket just simply because he's bigger and physical limitations come into play. It's it's just tough, man. Yeah, you know it's it's really really hard to make that work. Um, yeah, it's it's hard. <laughs> um, last question. Alrighty. It's from our dear friend Keenan at Scotty's him quote Would Pascal fit better with a spacing big than oh. Jakob? The quick answer. Absolutely he would. Pascal's game is predicated on driving. He makes like the one pass away, which sometimes, damn it, he, he has those turnovers that he really shouldn't. But like yeah. Pascal with a with like a Carl Anthony Towns or something like that, I think that there would be really great harmonious offense. It would be defensively. <laughs> defensively, maybe maybe that doesn't look so good. But offense, like there there are players who definitely um they make pascal a little bit more dangerous but also there's this not a lot of fives shoot it that well like they pretend they pretend to be a shooter but they don't like the difference is maybe like a step you know Jakob definitely he he's brought the defense in more than pascal's been used to over the past couple years but I think it's more so on Pascal needing now that he has a really good roller and, and Jakob is a really good roller. Pascal needs to become better equipped at running the pick and roll to accentuate that. And then considering we talked about how impactful rolling can be at the top of the podcast for Caitlin's question, roll gravity, super big deal. If Pascal can activate a roller with playmaking, his driving will open up and there'll also be a ton of different types of playmaking opportunities for him too. You see it with Fred. Yes, absolutely. For sure. I th- um, for me, like, obviously, short answer is yes. Um, is there a huge reason why I wanted to trade for Turner over yeah. Pardo? Just simply because it opens up the lane. I mean, if you truly believe... He's like, one of the guys. Yeah, he's one of the guys who can actually shoot it. Yeah, he was a, a person that seemed available and, like, had the rare skill set where he offered um, similar returns on defense as Jakob and also was able to create spacing. But he could also drive too. Yeah, he yeah. James James Boo was one of the first people to point that out that his driving ability was way above average. And you kind of saw that this year. And I think Caitlin uh, mentioned that as as well. It wasn't necessarily because Sabonis is off of the court. It's just more so like he is taking advantages and putting it upon himself to put the ball on the floor. James probably has like a YouTube video called like Miles Turner drives the basketball yeah. with like 18 different things. It probably has like 240,000 views on YouTube. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, last thing on the podcast, you and I have a bet. The bet, Trey, yeah. is that Gossman and now Blake, if you're listening to the podcast, which you absolutely do not, um, ERA is not like the best indicator of pitcher performance, but it's accessible and we know about it. Yeah. I'm going with Gossman as a lower ERA than Manoa. Oh. You're going with Manoa lower than Gossman, correct? 
Yes. So are you banking on because Gossman was one of the most unlucky pitchers that it's going to go his way this season? Bro, I'm like I'm like a little <laughs> truffle pig in those baseball statistics, man. I know his BABIP, his historically bad batting average on balls in play. I know his fielding independent pitching. I know his strikeout to walk ratio. I know like his hard hit percentage. I know his whiff percentage. That guy and the fact that a lot of it came because the Raptors were sh- – or the Raptors, the Blue Jays were shifting behind him. That guy is going to be a beast this year. And yeah. Manoa's great. I love Manoa. It's not looking good for me right now. <laughs> we made the we made the bet before, just before anybody knows. But yeah. um, next episode, we'll come up with terms for what happens to the loser. We're all, we already have the beard and the bald um, for the Pelicans and the Grizzlies. But, uh, yeah, that, that feels like a good place to end it. You know? Yeah. All right. I hope uh, I hope everybody is happy and satisfied with the answers they got. We always appreciate people writing in. I love doing mailbags because the questions are always awesome and people are so like thoughtful and like interesting in the way like this is what they think about basketball and they're like what do you think? That's that's like one of the best things. Um Trey, anything to say before we get out of here? Um love all of the questions. I really love talking basketball. Even though um, things get contentious, I got ratio today. No, no, two oh. days ago over something I was completely <laughs> right about. Like, <laughs> uh, for anyone in the YouTube comments, let me know who do you think's peaks were better: current Joel Embiid or Orlando Dwight Howard? I, I just want to see if I'm if I'm if I'm crazy or not. I think that. Joel, or I think that Dwight Howard got left off the top 75. Like, I think he got snubbed. Yes. But I also think Joel Embiid is better than Dwight was. I, I thought it was, like, common knowledge. <laughs> I thought you were going to say shut up, child, to me after I said that. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I am not on the Dwight side of history. <laughs> A little pun. You like that? Um, yeah, for anybody listening, once again, this podcast is sponsored by Queensway Automotive Group. We thank them very much. You can help support them and the po- for mo- for us, most importantly, the podcast, of yes. course, by clicking the link. It's available on the podcast. It's also available on YouTube. Thank you for listening. If you're on YouTube, like that video, subscribe. Most importantly, go over to the website, subscribe over there. And if you're listening on the podcast channel, thanks for chopping it up with us. Trey, I thank you for your time once again, man. Thank you. All right, everybody. Whether you got into this in the morning or at night, have a blessed day. and. Goodbye.